0: saddam funded one of the churches in your area what did you think about
1: that
2: we no longer have that community there but saddam funded the church saddam treated the christians and the minorities a lot better than they are being the the way they were treated thereafter he didn't find us a threat he was against extremists in the country
0: Today's guest is Wiam Namu. She was born in Baghdad, Iraq, before she immigrated to the United States. Uh, Today, she is the executive director of the Chaldean Cultural Center. She's an award-winning filmmaker, author of 14 books, and I just read her latest book, which is Little Baghdad, a memoir about an endangered people in an American city. Wiam, thanks so much for taking some time to talk to me.
2: Thanks for having me, Wade.
0: Yeah. So could you tell me what you loved most about living in Iraq as a child?
2: Well, um, a lot of things. I mean, you know, that's an an ancient land, but so is the United States, even though America is is fairly a new country. Uh, But that's my birth country. I have so many feelings and um, ties to there, the friends that I grew up with. The culture, I loved the music, the food, the memories. It was uh, where I grew up. I mean, we were playing out in the streets. Um, Our neighbors were like family, and so just that that whole atmosphere of being. um, I guess some of the things that um, Americans tell me that the United States was like in the past as well, (laughs) Uh, but. Those are the things that I really love, just being able to safely play in the streets and having uh, my friends whose mothers also treated me like their daughter. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. sounds, uh, I mean, you have some real nostalgia about Iraq as, as anyone would about where they grew. In fact, um, so I grew up in Southern California and I'm, I'm living in Des Moines, Iowa now. Anytime that I fly back, um, there's a point when you know I leave the airport and I'm driving back home and you come around this curve and and you hit the beach and if you roll the windows down, just the the salt water and the the, the fish smell and the the you know everything that goes along with that ocean smell hits me and it's it's the most nostalgic um, thing. Ever. You know, it's it's the best feeling ever. Is there anything like that that when you smell this certain food or you hear this certain song or something something specific that is really nostalgic for you?
2: Yes, it's the arabic movies that we used to watch you know we only had a couple of hours of tv a day uh one with little cartoons um for you know for children uh, i think it was like half hour i don't remember the details but i remember there was one particular play that was very famous and the whole entire city was so quiet during those evenings that the, that play uh, was on tv it was very famous, very fun to watch, and the family would just gather and watch it. And we grew up with um, movies. Egypt was the most famous place for that for for the movies. It was like the Hollywood of the Middle East. Um, and so when I watch these movies, when I hear these songs, when I the food that I cook, which my son one of his favorite meals is. Fried eggs with fried tomatoes. That was like a popular Iraqi breakfast. And so as I cook it, you know, these are the feelings that kind of give me um, those memories and also makes me feel that thank God that over here we can kind of relive that to a certain extent. I mean, yesterday I was at a at an Albanian restaurant that we've been going to. They have a DJ there, okay? The DJ knows us by heart. We go regularly, we'll get like a huge table. We were 10 people, and he'll play half Albanian songs, half Chaldean songs, and Arabic songs. <laughs> and we are dancing with the Albanians, and they're dancing with us. And then by now, they just know our songs. And, you know, we've recreated that somehow here. Um, so it's like somewhat. That nostalgia is kind of, we brought it here to this country with us, which is, again, this is what
1: we're allowed to do here in this country, is to kind of live the lifestyle that we want. Oh, what it means is... um, This is an ancient
2: lineage that has, that over thousands of years, different empires have tried to destroy. Including even today, there are people that try to erase um, from history, unfortunately. And I didn't know what it was to be a Chaldean until I was an adult. And that was because growing up, we only learned about being Iraqi, which is a wonderful thing but we weren't really um, encouraged to look into our own history. And, uh, and all I remember is us focusing and being in fear because it was during Saddam's regime. Oh, I actually, he was kind of like coming into power during that time. Um, and there was like the secrecy that we were living under as we were trying to leave to come to the United States. So that's my memory of us just being, uh, knowing that we're Christian, and knowing that we're trying to leave and that there was some kind of a a sense of danger involved in that. Um, Then when we came to the United States, we were on survival mode, just the family trying to work, trying to make ends meet. Because oftentimes when you come to this, when you leave um, Iraq, you couldn't come directly from there here. So you had to, A, you had to leave in secrecy, and and which this was such a shock for me and, and traumatizing. Um, But then second, you can't really take anything with you. And so you're just trying to do all these maneuvers to just be in survival mode. Um, When I got older, I knew we were Chaldean by name, but I really just I didn't think that there was a history that predates religion associated with our um, ethnic group. Um, And then as a writer, I started writing early on. I was more interested just to write stories. But then naturally, as a writer, I started doing research and I thought, wait a minute, like this is a very, this is a unique community. This is, we have things, um, we have a rich history that's very neglected. And why is that? And that curiosity just kind of got me to dig deeper and deeper and to find that there are such ancestral roots um, and they're so important, but neglected by the entire world and you know, finding out that the, uh, in Mesopotamia, in ancient Mesopotamia, where our people are from, um, writing was started. Uh, the first city-states, so many first, The wheel was invented there. Um, then you you start wondering why isn't this why isn't this highlighted more? Then you start learning. Well, over the years, there was just more oppression towards this group of people. There was genocide. There was ethnic cleansing. Um, there was attempts over and over and over again to destroy that whole ethnic group. When I realized that, and I realized that my parents and grandparents and great-great-parents are Chaldean and what that means, it just, you know, I took it upon myself to feel like, well, if I was born in that region as a Chaldean and as a writer, I feel like every position in life, your position, Wade, my position – And and anything we do, whether we are parents or whether where we were, the area that we were born, there is a responsibility to use our talents to serve. And part of, for me, I felt like I need to tell our stories because it's bad enough that they've been really uh, that so many empires and so many um, wars have tried to oppress that. So I started feeling an importance to to share our stories. I don't hold on to that identity as this in a divisive way, because at the end of the day, I consider myself human and I consider myself American. <laughs> so I don't hold on to it like I'm a Chaldean, you know, like a hardcore Chaldean who is just anti any other label, anti Iraqi label, anti Arab label. anti. No, not at all. But I have to embrace it and and. Understand it is just because this is part of who I am. So I just honor it through my work and through some of my traditions too.
0: Yeah, that really came through in your writing. Um, In fact, some things specifically I want to talk to uh, about later. Um, You you do have a very balanced view in the way you write. It seemed like um, I was trying to, I was journaling about this this morning and trying to put words to it. It's you, uh, you're very. You can tell you have a purpose to promote your Chaldean, um roots, but you also care about humanity as ho- a whole, meaning um, you, you don't dive, dive into any sort of tribalism or, um, you know, the, it, it doesn't seem like there's any resentment towards any other groups. Um, you, you cared about humanity um, and, and human values as a whole. Uh, I don't know if what, what I'm saying is, is making sense, but I, there was a unique uh, tone you had that I really enjoyed when I read your book.
2: That makes me so happy. Thank you very much. Because then you, know, th- this is who I am. I'm. I care about humanity. I'm human first and foremost. I always say, like, the day you know I'm gonna be dead and buried, I'm gonna be dead and buried as a human being, <laughs> not you know as this. Chal- I don't think that my last thoughts as I'm leaving, you know, that I'm Chaldean. I don't, you know, I'm. It's. I'm gonna leave as a human being, and I entered as a human being, uh, and I. I always. That's just. Uh, Part of the truth. It's not even something that I'm like, oh, you know, I'm discovering. It's just the truth. We're all just humans, but at the same time, there are elements of our humanity that we need to be aware of. Again, as men, as women, as parents, as spouses, that's just part of life, and it's kind, it's fun to explore these things, and it's also, I think, um, again, we have a purpose. If something is being denied or being destroyed. Part of our purpose is to nurture that, to plant new seeds, to highlight that. Not in a way to say something is better or worse, but just as as it is. Because all other communities have beautifully done that. The Italian communities, the black community, the Jewish community. And I love watching them when they are showing their um, culture and their stories. But we have not had the chance to really do that. We, we just haven't for various reasons, mostly because we did come up from a very oppressive region that does not support creatives. Um, so it's not easy to just, you know, I read my novel. I don't know if I've written it about this in various books. I'm not sure if, it, if I did in Little Baghdad. Um, my first novel was Gone with the Wind. That's the first novel I read. Before that, it was all textbooks that I read. And I read that. I was on transit in Jordan. Um, waiting for a visa to come to the United States, and this novel was just there. Now imagine like nine years old, and I'm reading Gone with the Wind and imagining the U.S. looking the way, you know, thinking that it would look um, in the 1800s. So that was my image, and my first film was Gone with the Wind because my family saw I was so addicted to this book, so they took me to see Gone with the Wind in the the movie theater. So that implanted more of a a false idea of what the United States looks like. Um, But... Saying that, meaning that that was my first novel because we weren't introduced to those kind of creative readings. Everything we did had to have this kind of purpose, and it was very strict, and you got hit if you don't answer the right thing. So coming from there, and and, and many writers had to suffer as a consequence. Um, I mean, obviously, we didn't have free speech or anything like that. And so even though I came young, those... Uh, threads still linger in your system. Because again, you know, growing up feeling that there's some kind of a fear, even though I couldn't explain it, but it sticks on you. So you're afraid to say your truth. You're afraid of certain things that don't even exist in the United States as much, not completely the every, everything exists like there's still here lack of um, to a certain degree or or the attempt to take away freedom of speech to a certain degree which really saddens me um, because these are the things that we avoided like this is the reason that we came here but still people are trying to resist that they don't want it to get to, to the other side whereas over there if you try to resist you're really facing danger uh, or death um, so yeah. So this is the novel writing is just being creative as part of uh, something that we were able to exercise here.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I, I appreciate uh, you saying that. And, and in fact, uh, another project I'm kind of working on at the time, I, I've been digging a little bit into the history of the Bill of Rights and, and where we get these ideas of freedom of speech, freedom of expression, things like that. And although freedom of expression didn't this and they both kind of came to that area and it really kind of shocked me, I guess, is there anything else um, with the history of Chaldeans or, or just Mesopotamia, that region? Is there, is there anything in Western culture is the way that because it comes from there and and, and something you think might surprise uh, somebody living in the U S today? I don't don't know if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. So, Aside from writing, so they created the first writing system where even today there was um, there's tablets where some uh, somebody complained to a merchant. So this was the first like where now we pick up the phone to make a complaint to a, a retail store. There was a tablet where uh, someone complained complained about something that they they had received. So the Um, the law system, uh, there was gods and goddesses that are associated with different, you know, they were called gods and goddesses. But after I wrote a book called um, Mesopotamian Goddesses, because when I started finding the role of women in ancient Mesopotamia is not how it is today at all. And it was also, uh, you know, stories get changed and the narrative gets changed. And so you see a region as always being the way it was, but it wasn't. They had these titles as an honor titles for people that were, um, took care of certain areas in, in, the, in the region. For instance, uh, there was a goddess, her name is Gula, and she was a healer. She was a goddess of medicine. And she would, took care of everything that had to do with medicine. So they gave her, that was like a, a title, how we give the Pope, you know? So it wasn't necessarily, and, but, and then they believed in a higher, even these gods and goddesses, they believed in a higher power, one higher supreme power. Um, one thing that when I discovered I was in awe, I was first, I was in, first I thought I was reading this incorrectly because I found that there was a woman, her name is Enhadwana. She was a princess, a priestess, and the first recorded writer in history from ancient Mesopotamia. So when I first read that, I thought somehow I'm mistaken or somehow the description is mistaken. So I started Googling her and learning more about her. And I realized, no, this is true, that she is the first recorded writer in history, um, not because there wasn't any writing prior to her time, around 2200 BC, um, but it was because prior to her, traditionally, scribes, they did not sign their names. Like the Epic of Gilgamesh, it's there's a whole story, there's a whole flood story there, but nobody signs their name. We don't know who the writers are. In, in the case of Enheduanna, she wanted to make history. So what she did is she signed her name at the end of her poetry. She said, it is I, Enheduanna, who wrote this, something that has not done before. So she wanted to make history. She knew what she was doing. And I thought, why am I just finding out about this right now that this is the first recorded writer in history? And again, it's because the lack of um, lack of esteem or given any value to anything that happened past 14 1,500 years ago in that region. It's part of our, I mean, this is part of our birthright to. To know this, and we we need to be uh, celebrating these kind of achievements. But it's not over there; that's not done because she was a woman, and this was in ancient times, and so it's given very very little credit. But when her disk it was uh, her disk was discovered in one thousand nine hundred twenty seven by British archaeologists, and you know once it was discovered, um, guess who took it and ran away with it and tried to make her famous? It was European woman. When they discovered her they said oh my goodness this poet she was a princess she's a priestess she was the daughter of sargon the great how did we not know about this so when her, when these um, artifacts surfaced the european women took this information and ran with it but it wasn't enough and again and i bring her in all of my stories um i'm not sure if i brought her a little baghdad but my my novel pomegranate which was turned into a film the main character is inspired by Anhadwana. The main character is a, uh, an Iraqi refugee who is she's a very smart woman. And as a reader, she comes up, she stumbles upon Anhadwana and realizes, wait a minute, I've been fed this fake story that women of Iraq are so oppressed and they're so weak and they this and that. And so she uses the poetry of Anhadwana and the strength and the position of Anhadwana to manifest herself into the person she wants to become here in the United States.
0: Is that, um, I I haven't read that book. Was that, uh, was that potentially?
2: Yeah. I think everything is probably based partly on me and partly Mm -hmm. on other characters around me who have similar um, issues, but definitely that one because she, uh, Niran is the main character in Pomegranate and she's, um, she loves poetry, she wants to write, and everybody around her is just like in a different world, right? And so she's trying to find that balance. And yet knowing her history, she's she's trying to figure out how to walk in these fine lines. And yes, part of that is mine. And part of that, whether it's our clothes or the way um, there's so much weight placed upon women and, and holding up the, the family honor and the community's honor. So there's an outward struggle of even some things associated with our clothes, as well as inner struggle of some beliefs that we might not feel we align with, but for the sake of family and community that we um, pursue. And and I think uh, for us, we feel very unheard, misunderstood, not being given the position or the opportunities to express our stories, although. To be honest, in my case, I have found um, a lot of people, including such as, like yourself, welcoming of wanting to hear that, wanting to learn more about it. Um, And I think part of the reason you ask something, is there something that, you know, Americans would be surprised about? Um, I'm not sure what it is, but over the the years, what I found is through having an agent and... um, major agents in New York and um, through the film industry and such, I found to hearing stories that don't fit into a certain narrative, it's uncomfortable. People like to be familiar with, you know, they want either the stories where the woman is wearing a hijab and is abused, or the woman who is wearing a hijab and is liberated. And the stories in between just kind of go on the wayside and uh oftentimes our stories are not even told by um by us they're not authentic they are told by people who have an image of what they think we we live like or we should uh, or what life for us looks like so we get stereotyped our men get stereotyped and it's i went through a period where that was kind of frustrating because i thought like no no this is not are but then I realized the only way to heal this frustration um is to really like surrender to my work to the degree where that doesn't bother me anymore and so I think being having um, done so much work and by the way little bagdad is, is my 15th book I think part of that is because for me just to focus on what I'm doing and not be bothered of who is saying what about us and what kind of image is portrayed, negative or, you know, images out there.
0: Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. and I think that's what I saw come through. Um, there's a number of subjects, cultures, people that I, I'm genuinely interested in learning about, but it seems like it's hard to find good information. Like everybody does have a narrative they want to preach that they descend into some sort of tribalism. They want to say some one group is good and one group is bad and some sort of ideology. And it's hard to, um, I think it's hard to find, find truth. And that's why I appreciated your book so much was because you did have such a balanced view in everything you said. Um, in fact, in, in there, you, you talked about after you had moved to Detroit and sorry, I'm bouncing back and forth here a little bit, but you had moved to Detroit and I believe Saddam funded one of the churches in your area is that am i understanding that correct and and what did you think about that
2: yeah well um so i i live in metro detroit but not not in detroit the majority of the of the chaldean population did come to detroit originally on the seven mile area but you know i had friends friends there and we lived my brother decided to place us somewhere Uh, he was here before us he petitioned for us and he had us live what seemed like the boondocks like it was um it was called Shelby Township so people from Detroit drove like 45 minutes and were always complaining like why are you guys living here like so far like it feels like a trip coming to to visit you um years later I interviewed my I was interviewing all my family members and I asked my brother I said why did you move us to this place that had no Middle Easterners, no Chaldeans? He said, I purposely did that because I wanted you guys to acclimate quickly. And I knew that if you stay within the Chaldean community, you're not going to take advantage of the opportunities that the United States has to offer. And I thought, wow, that was so wise. Here we are complaining about you all these years. <laughs> we did it, you, know? you thought We thought you were just being mean and inconsiderate and sensitive. And here you are you used your wisdom to do something so special for us that we were, I don't know if if anybody else was aware because we were so busy complaining about the process. Um, But Saddam did fund the church in Detroit um, and there there was a cultural center there. Interestingly, that it's not the same cultural center that I have because we had to unfortunately move over time. Our communities were not able to continue living in Detroit for various reasons associated with violence and drugs and such. Um, So, We no longer have that community there, but Saddam funded the church and um, Saddam, and this is something that people are not comfortable to hear, uh, although now it's not like so unique as before, um, was better, treated the Christians and the minorities a lot better than they are being, the the way they were treated thereafter, especially after 2003. For various reasons, one being that he didn't find us a threat and um, he really (laughs) believed he did not uh, want extremists. He did. He was against extremists in the country. And Iraq was much more diverse during that time. And again, I think people have a hard time hearing that because it just feels like, well, then, you know, we're coming up to the 20 year anniversary, um, I believe March 18th. Of of the U.S. led invasion on Iraq and, I you know my first book came out shortly sure, after that in 2000 the war started in 2003 my book came out in 2004 it was a book it was a novel called the feminine art they don't really have anything to do about the war but all people asked me about was about Saddam the war Islam so I I soon realized I had over hundred interviews within like a couple of months and that's all people wanted to hear about. And I realized, well, you know, I mean, okay. So, um, I mean, the host would try to be nice just to announce my book, but nobody really cared about it. And then I thought, well, okay, but that's okay. If they're wanting to hear about this, that's something, you know, they want to know about me. And so I, I didn't take it, um, I wasn't offended or anything by that or bothered, but then the next thing I knew, I'm like studying everything about my background because I wasn't that prepared. And I'd be on interviews on the phone and I'd have paper all over everywhere with the time frames. And as they're asking me questions, one thing I found, um, there was a couple of communities uh, that really had a hard time. There was one time I was supposed to do a 10 minute interview that went on for an hour because the calls, you know, they allowed calls. And the phone wouldn't stop ringing, and and some people were really upset that I was saying that, you know, oh, we had a happy childhood, or, you know, things were better off before when Saddam, or he wasn't as brutal towards the Christians. They were really having a hard time with that. And so soon after, I realized, like, I'm basically, you know, our men and women are in, the, in Iraq fighting. Their, um, Their sons and daughters and their spouses are in Iraq fighting, and here I am, I'm saying something that's not feeling comfortable because it's questioning, why are we there? So it was like, uh, it's just the feeling of being in between these two countries, like America being my home country, being my country in in that sense, my home, and then Iraq being my birth country, and kind of seeing that play out. So I oftentimes took, you know, just took... uh, just step back and thought again, just always try to, when I saw that there was tensions or misunderstanding that I'm pressing certain buttons that, um, not intentionally, but that are upsetting people, I would just step back and I would find a way to just use my creative energy in in different ways. And that came out even in pomegranate, my book. Um, because at that time, um, it was during the it was during the twenty sixteen elections. There was a lot of tensions between the Democrats and the Republicans. There was a lot of tensions between Muslims and Christians, and uh, I got involved a little bit. And then I thought, gosh, this is just leaking my energy. What what can I do differently? And I decided to write a script that was a Muslim country, um, a Muslim family. Uh, particularly focused on the girl, the young woman, uh, acro- living across the street of a Christian family in this town that's a little bit considered Baghdad and the tensions between them. But what I loved about it is, I mean, it's it's so real. Uh, Iraqi women are so smart. We are you know, it's very hard to mess around with us. We're just very matter of fact. We we don't get fooled easily. And and that's the side of the woman, Muslim, Christian. I don't care what her background is, whether she's educated or not. My mom didn't go to school, but you could not like she would just read you like a mile away. So that's the part I wanted to show. But they're living in this political, religious tension part. But they approach it in a very smart in a very honest way and they're very sassy and I just love that about them because these are the women that I know these are the women that I've been wanting to write about and I've been writing about for for such a long time it's just not the popular narrative because it always looks better that an iraqi woman is oppressed that she's abused that she's not in a good condition and that's um you know that's the one thing I think like I've tried to do for the american public is just to show a
1: side of us that is more real than the, the stereotype. Yes. So my name means harmony and
2: um it means like love between friends and uh nation and a more like on a nation type of thing and uh and my name I I feel has matched I think what I what I um, the way I live my life and the the way I even live my career not just like my personal family life so I try to create that harmony um, without backing away and trying kind of trying to be uh, what's that word like naive um, I think it's good to be smart but I think it's also important to use your heart and not just not just you know, show off your intelligence and shut off your heart or just be so mushy with your heart and really be ignorant of the realities out
1: there. You you really yeah. have to have a balance between the both. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Well, in uh, the 7th century,
2: in Mesopotamia was, by the way, it was an all-Aramaic-speaking um, country. The whole Middle East spoke Aramaic. Then there was uh, the Arab-Islamic um, invasion in the 7th century. And, you know, things changed where people um, had to either convert or people started... You're, either they were forced into conversion or some people just maybe willingly. However it happened, there were a lot of battles where um, one of the reasons that I think Chaldeans take pride in in having survived is they did survive despite all the wars and everything that happened. And while many others did convert, we're right now I'm in contact with um, families in Iraq who um, are... Shia, who are from the south, whose ancestry are Chaldean. And the way they found that is because they have documents saying their grandfather, uh, great grandfathers, you know, in documents what they were and that they had converted. To me, um, the difference when, when people talk about this, this is kind of a common human thing where over thousands of years, you have different tribes, you have different empires take over other empires and continue on same thing happened in the United States there was the Native Americans and then the Europeans came. The difference is um, is that in Iraq you there was a total success to the point where there is hardly any minorities left So the Jewish community was like over 160,000 um, I believe in the 1960s and 70s. now there's like three they were four. I think the one passed away last year, there was four individuals left. One passed away, you have three down, you have three left. And I once wanted to interview them, but they can't reveal their names, so you can't. So it's to the point where it went from um, being very diverse. There's a book called uh, My Father's Paradise, uh, written by, I forgot the author's name, but um, he's Jewish. And he was from the northern part of Iraq and talked about a time where Muslims, Christians and Jews lived peacefully together and they defended each other. And that was the experience that I had amongst my Muslim community because I was born in Baghdad, which is the majority is Muslim. Um, But one thing that I noticed different is in Iraq, it, it it was successful where the minorities were all pushed out in some way or another. You have the Yazidis, you have the Christians, you have the Jewish. And those those communities were very enriching to um, to Muslims and Arabs. And they themselves would tell you that. Most people didn't want that to happen. I mean, my husband right now has so many Muslim friends. I have muslim friends I we have archaeologists in Iraq who do amazing work to try to preserve the history and and they're not they don't want that to happen because they know that any land where you do that it's it's not healthy and I believe that the fact that the minorities or the indigenous people of Iraq were pushed out over time is Part of the reason why iraq hasn't been able to completely recover it wasn't just the u.s war because they've been in many wars um and 20 years later they cannot they have not totally healed not we can't just blame at some point they have to take accountability in their leadership but if it's always a tribal mentality where we have to get rid of that group we have to get rid of this group it's Shi'a against Sunni, it's Christians against Muslims, it's on and on. Um, That's a pattern. That's a pattern that I, I don't think, if Iraq can try to deny that there's that pattern, but that's a pattern that if you don't acknowledge, which there's a lot of people they don't even acknowledge, that. oh, well, you know what, they'll give it these different excuses. If you don't acknowledge what you did, such as the United States having acknowledged what happened to the Native Americans, you cannot heal and grow as a nation. As a couple, you know, one thing my mom, I always say, my mom didn't go to school, but she was an expert at at marriage. And I'm not just talking about marriage between husband and wife, any marriage, between communities, between friendships, between even nations. There was an understanding of what really marriage is. And if you don't take accountability for the people that were hurt and you don't try to offer any kind of uh, like try to make up for anything, I don't think that that country will really be able to heal because you haven't planted seeds instead of those, you know, damaging seeds that as early as 2014, there was a genocide that hardly anybody really discusses or acknowledges. It's like, oh, it it just happened. It, It happened. And that was only it's always there's an excuse. If that happened anywhere else, that would be focused on and there would be so many attempts to try to educate the communities about it so that it doesn't happen again. But it it will happen again just because nobody even acknowledges it. It's like, well, it just happened. It's
1: in the past. Let's move on. my dad was a very, very smart
2: man. He was a, a reader. He was a healer. He was many wonderful things. And he knew that he did not want any of the lifestyles um, that were outside of what he believed in. He did not want to be a bathist. He did not want to join the bath party. Um, and he did not convert at that time when during our time, we were in a place that Most Chaldeans that survived didn't, um, at that point, have to convert, but they were little by little, like, started leaving the country for religious and uh, political political uh, freedoms. Uh, But he knew that, you know, he had seven daughters and four boys, and he knew that, especially for his daughters, it's important for him not to stay in a country that really did not offer that kind of a a freedom for them. And he also knew that for my brothers, it just meant war after war that they would just be serving in one army after the other. Um, so he knew, I, I think America was in the cards as soon as the bath party started moving in. And he just, you know, knew that he had this opportunity to come here and he took it. Despite the fact, you know, when he came here, it really, um, it took a toll on his health. He didn't have a position here. He didn't, he got sick very quickly but i felt like for him he did what was right by bringing us here and then afterwards he unfortunately he um passed away charlie after we arrived cuz he got sick because he he like even me imagine being so much younger than him and as a child and i have these kind of feelings for my birth country we all have that even the people that are born here in the united states have this feeling for, for Iraq. Um, so for him it must have it was heartbreaking for him to have to leave that and leave his position and his people just because so that we could feel safer and, and it wasn't that he was happy here. he just knew it was a better
1: place for us for his children. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't trust us. I think because I was, um,
2: because I was American. (laughs) I am American. (laughs) I mean, yeah, they said, my cousins took me there. And they said, she lived here. Can she just see
1: the house? They, They wouldn't let us in. They were afraid. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another
2: thing, you know, just imagine that feeling where we don't feel like we can go back or visit the homes that were destroyed or the the lands. I don't even know. I don't have this feeling that I want to go see those. The the village that was destroyed, parents and grandparents were born. Um, So that was destroyed by ISIS, including like the churches and the cemeteries. And I don't have, I was there in 2000 and was there for four days. It was one of the most beautiful four days of my visit in, to Iraq. Um, it was so beautiful then. I don't know that I have this desire. I do not wanna go and see that destruction because we all. I, my memories after we left, is that seeing Iraq being destroyed by one war after another, after it was the Iraq-Iran War, and then it was the Kuwait War, and then it was the, and it was before, uh, during this whole time, the sanctions, and then you have the 1991 Gulf War, and then you have uh, the 2003 War, and then you have the 2014 genocide. What is the feeling, like these mixed emotions that you have inside, you get to the point where it's so painful to look at this, And um, just painful because you you love that land and you love that culture. And, you know, you have so many wonderful memories of the people and even you love you. Right now, when when they won the golf um, cup, we were just so excited because it feels like, oh my gosh, this is a part of us. Uh, But at the same time, seeing all these destructions and feeling like, if I go back there, what am I going to see? I couldn't visit my childhood home. I don't know that I even could today. And then the villages are destroyed. You know, and then we have to come to terms with the guilt. I used to have, a not just me, I think a lot of people who left Iraq had this guilt of like, why were we able to get out? And then the people that we left behind that were really hurt. And I'm not just talking about the Christians. My best friend was a Muslim. When I asked my mom, I tried to track her down and her name is Niran. Um, We got information that during the war with Iran, Saddam had them leave because they had Iranian origins. I mean, so that region is always as constantly that person has to leave. And that, So I'm not just talking about us. I'm just talking just about a belief system that if somebody does not fit into your ideology, they have to leave. I mean, no, why isn't it? Why can't you embrace and
1: you, they, they were a great family. Why don't you celebrate that? Yeah, so um, if they just Google my name, I don't think anybody else has this name. <laughs> and
2: they can go on Amazon, they'll see my books. Um, my recent book, like you said, is Little Baghdad. But my novel, the film was just completed and it's being submitted to film festivals. Uh, Pomegranate, It's uh, they can watch the trailer, just um, uh, Google Pomegranate Trailer, 2023. Um, It's a wonderful film. It's got so much humor. It shows the really the loving, uh, authentic side of Iraqi communities and and the Arab world. Um, So they can just really just Google my name. Uh, The book that I'm working on currently, it's called um, My Native American Friend. So it's conversations that I have with my Native American friend, um, who is such a fascinating person. And um, I don't use his real name, but he knows I'm writing. I've always attracted Native Americans, uh, where, the workplace where I was, and they've been great teachers for me. And it's like me trying to discover what is the similarities. And, and interestingly enough, we have a lot of similarities, maybe a different land, but so many similarities. But I think he's such a character. He has such an interesting perspective. Gather this book, I think. That's what I'm working on right now. <laughs>
0: That's so great. Um, so, my last question: in in your book, you explained and and you mentioned already that uh, Chaldean people historically speak Aramaic, and I've I've heard about this language before. I've, I found it fascinating. I think you know it has deep biblical roots, and there's there's a lot of history there. But you also explain in your book that with um, the Chaldean culture being scattered through throughout the world, less and less people are learning it, and it's it's in danger of becoming a a dead language so my ask is would you be willing to say anything anything that you choose in aramaic and then also give us the translation and that way we could catch a little piece of it here in this video
2: sure well i was thinking about this because you mentioned that you're gonna want me to say something so i figured you know what since it's sunday we talked you talked about your family going to church so you can do work and my husband (laughs) went, went to church and i stayed so for the interview and such um, and I said, well, since it's Sunday, how about if I uh, share the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic?
0: That would be fantastic.
2: Shemad babo Brona, Ruha ha Kha'alaha, Ameen. Babandile dile Bishmaya, Pai Shem Ethia Shemukh, Athyam Al-Kutukh, Ha'wa Ajbonukh, Taghdeel, Bishmaya, Hada Khabaran, Hallan, lkhma, Sumqanan, Adiyu. I think I skipped that's fantastic. Line. So I hope that the nuns and the priests will forgive me for that. One. <laughs>
0: I'm sure it'll be okay. Thank you so much for that. Weem, I really uh, enjoyed this conversation. Had a great time talking to you. You're uh I really love your perspective, your, your knowledge of history and your ability to, um, you know, like I said, have, have a balanced view and, and walk down things that are so um, emotional for, for a lot of reasons that have happened through history. But, you know, speak the truth and, and uh, still have empathy for all people. I think that's a really great quality and I really admire that.
2: Thank you so much for this opportunity, Wade. I really enjoyed it because every time somebody hears us out, it means such, it means a great deal to us. It's uh, You're preserving, you know, knowingly or not, but you're helping preserve um, our history and to help document it. That's really what you're doing. So thank you.
0: Yeah, this has been great. Thanks so much, Wim.
2: Have a wonderful day.